Rob, it's great to have you with us today. First of all, before we dive into the questions, how are you? Um, 8.7 out of 10. <laughs> I love this already. I love your specificity. So what gets <laughs> you to an 8.7 out of 10? And I've got to ask that question before anything else. Well, I think if you're alive and breathing, you're a seven. Um, nice. To be a nine needs to be like lots of big wins. And there's never no challenges. So I'm not naive of that. But you need to be on top of all your, most of your challenges and have a lot of big wins to be a nine plus. Actually, just had a meeting with my MD and she told me the profit that we'd made this month. And it was really good. Um, the last calendar month. And then this month, the sales are a good few hundred thousand more than where I thought we would be. So that probably took it up from a 7.9 to an 8.7. Nice. So I do love this already going off in a direction I had not planned. Are you the sort of guy that would ever give yourself higher than a nine? Would you ever give yourself a 10 or is that just not how you roll? No, I could never give myself a 10 because I don't love myself enough to give myself a 10. Um, and I believe there are always challenges. You either know about them or you don't. Um, so to give oneself a 10 would assume that you are on top of all your challenges. And to give oneself a 10 would assume there is no more room for growth. Yeah. So actually, 9.3 might be a 10 in my world. Yeah. Got you. Cool. And this is a lovely lead in, Rob, actually. You're talking about challenges there. So First thing I've got to ask you is, I think right at the top of your LinkedIn profile, in pretty big letters on your banner, it says, unless you've changed it recently, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Love that. Desperate to know, to know more. So with that in mind, like, how do you personally go about analyzing risk and making those big judgment calls, big decisions? that you need to when you're not just running one business now, right, but across multiple businesses? What does that look like for you? Because I think that's something that many leaders struggle with, right? Analyzing risk and making those tough calls. Yeah. So that saying is my own. It's not anyone else's. And I, I say it at the end of every single piece of content I do, which would be many, many thousands of times in the last just few years. Um, I believe that when we play safe, we play small. And when we strive to play bigger, that's where many of our rewards are. So you could argue, Ben, that to the biggest risk is by saying no or not facing and taking on the biggest risk. So in that regard, I would naturally face things that other people would deem more risky, but I deem it more risky not to do it. So, for example, I've been an entrepreneur for 17 years. I've got, I think, 12 companies now, 1,350 tenants, 360 property units. We're, we might hit 25 million in sales this year. We're comfortably on a run to hit way more than 20. And there was a time when I was employed. And I saw it as risky to start my own business. Looking back, the only risk would have been to not start my own business. Now, I, in addition to that, Ben, I, I have a, a, a mantra, which is if I'm on the fence, the answer is yes. 
Yeah, nice. Now, most people, if they're on the fence, the answer is no. And I, if you're a surgeon, if you're on the fence about cutting there, you should probably say no. But I'm not a surgeon. I'm an entrepreneur. And what I can do is say yes and then figure out how later on. So if it's a 50-50, it's nearly always a yes for me. That being said, inspired by Richard Branson probably 15 years ago, when he um, got involved in the airline industry, he did a deal with, I think it may have been Boeing, it was you know one of the big airlines, whereby if the business didn't work, he could return the aircraft. That's right. Yeah. So obviously a huge risk in an airline is buying the aircraft. They're hundreds of millions of pounds or whatever. But he did a deal where if the business didn't go, he could at least return the aircraft and he wasn't left with hundreds of millions of metal he could do nothing with. Yeah. So in my research, inspired by Richard Branson, it would be, okay, how do I protect the biggest downside risk? So let's say someone wants to start their business. What's the downside risk? Oh, well, um, losing my job. Okay, could I get that job back? Maybe. And if not, could I get a job like it? Probably. So if I could get a job like it and maybe only take a 10% pay cut, my risk isn't my life. My risk is a 10% drop in salary. So in anything I'm doing, what's the risk? Is it time? Is it money? How can I protect that risk as much as possible? And then if it's 50-50, it's a yes. So I'm not a major researcher. I've got a team of researchers, as we talked about at the start, Ben, and I tend to get my business partner or my team members to do the hardcore research for me. So I'm presented with information and then I can make a quick decision because I hate slow decisions. Yeah. So has your view of risk, has your appetite of risk changed at all as your business has, has grown, right? Is it a case of uh, like the, the more you have, the more risky it feels that you might might lose it or, or are, you still, are you still the same? Does that mantra still hold true? Yeah, I'm 44 now, Ben. And I was in my I was in my mid mid 20s when I started. I had nothing to lose. I was in debt. I had no brand, no reputation. You know, I didn't have a load of mortgages, a load of cars, a load of houses, a load of staff. I didn't have any of that. So I could be more flippant and transient. I could have afforded a couple more defeats or failures. Thankfully, I didn't really feel like I had any major ones of those. Now I have children and I have nearly 150 staff, as I told you before. Yeah. And, you know, I have a property empire and a business empire and a brand and a reputation. I try not to let them be a cloud to cloud my judgment, but for sure, I'm not going to go all in. And you know, the Americans say, you know, go all in or go big or go home. It's absolutely stupid now at my level to put all my money into one asset class or to be all in one business model. And you could say, oh, well, that means you're not growing as big as you could. And that means you've not got a, a big risk threshold. So be it. Mm. Because I have so much more to lose now that I don't want to lose. I know the Americans seem to celebrate going bust. I don't want to go bust. I'm proud that in 17 years I've never gone bust. I've never sunk anyone's money. I've never lost investor money. I'm proud of that. And I don't want that on my conscience. Jordan Belfort can live with that. He lost loads of people's money. And now he's going around telling everyone how to sell. I couldn't, I could not live like that. It would burn my soul. Mm. And I do sometimes lay at night thinking, could have been a billionaire if I'd have really, like Tyson Fury, he says, 
Don't care if I lose everything. Don't care. I do. And maybe that's held me back from, you know, we've done 150 to 200 million in sales since I've been an entrepreneur. Maybe I could have done a billion if I really didn't care about losing everything. But I'm okay with what I've achieved and what I've done. So it's okay. Yeah, cool. So what then, um, what specific advice, Rob, would you give to someone who is maybe thinking about If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. setting out as an entrepreneur, building their own business, maybe someone who is in a senior leadership role employed in a fairly large company who has got a, let's say, slightly more conservative approach to to risk. Are there any specific tools or tactics that you've picked up over the years that people might be able to pick up and use? Yeah. Commitment, accountability. So in this very studio about 20 weeks ago, Someone called me out for a fight. I'm not a boxer. I'm a lover, not a fighter. (laughs) And he's someone who is in my industry, up and coming, bit of an upstart, trying to, you know, like those animals, the small birds that stand on top of the big animals and feed off them. He's a bit like that to us in our industry, I would say. He'd have a different view, but he's not here. Uh, And he challenged me to a fight and I agreed and I bet him 50 grand in this studio. Then he upped it to 100 grand a few weeks later. And um, we've pretty much sold all the tickets, which is about 1600 tickets. I've never had a fight. I've never done boxing before. Um, And I have lost a lot of weight that I didn't really have to lose. And I am probably the fittest I've ever been in my life. And I have trained almost on the level of a professional fighter because of the accountability of a £100,000 bet and fighting in front of 1,600 people on July the 1st. And for me, that's a great analogy for business and life. Like, if I just wanted to get fit by July the 1st with no accountability, no public humiliation and shame, no bet, no bragging rights, nothing, well, what I would have done is what I've done for the last... 20 weeks before this 20 weeks, which is three times a week and just eat shit. So the problem with comfort is it's the opposite of commitment and accountability. And I believe every human on this planet can achieve results in any field of endeavor way above their own belief and expectations of themselves when you create commitment and accountability, i.e. I do this or I die trying. 
and daily I feel the pain of not doing this. Therefore, I'm going to do this or die trying. And I train twice a day and I don't feel like it. And I get in the ice bath at two degrees and I don't feel like it. And I have to deal with the lawyers and this other fighter and all the, the public wah, selling of the fight. And I don't feel like it, but I do it. So paradoxically, those people who are comfortable, you need to find a way to get rid of that comfort and find discomfort. And the problem is a nice 60 grand a year job or a nice mid to senior level role, you know, with some pension in the future. You've got a mortgage, a couple of car loans, a couple of kids. Your lifestyle's not bad enough to leave. You're earning just enough not to leave. You hate your boss not quite enough to leave. All these things create the illusion of comfort, but actually it's an illusion. And comfort comes after discomfort. So I was 50 grand in debt. My dad had a nervous breakdown in his pub. I was 27 years old almost and felt full of shame. And my dad's breakdown and shame and 50 grand's worth of debt is good commitment and accountability to start a business. Hmm. But I waited for that event to happen before I basically did what I knew I always wanted to do. So anyone listening, don't wait for external commitment because you get diagnosed with an illness or you get fired or some external event like a lockdown happens. You've got to create that yourself. Um, Because once you've got commitment and accountability, then all you need is a business model that works and persistence to see it through to completion. Yeah. So it sounds to me, Rob, from listening to you talk, that in terms of your approach to risk, your approach to decision-making, it's more weighted to, let's not invest loads of time in trying to analyze and make the right decision. I'm going to make a quick decision, and then I'm going to have absolute commitment to make sure whatever that decision is, I'm going to do everything that's required to to make it work, right? Yes. So... Um, I really like Ed Sheeran. Not musically, he's solid, but vanilla. (laughs) But his work ethic, his drive, his commitment to success. I love that about Ed Sheeran. And Ed Sheeran said, in order to write a good song, you've got to write a lot of shit songs. Yeah. And for me, that was the best business. That was the best business advice that wasn't business advice. So what people do is they want to get all their ducks in a row and they want to get perfect before they start. And essentially what that becomes is active procrastination. And in reality, in anything like in my boxing, I've got to um, be the least experienced fighter to gain experience. Every winner was once a beginner. Every master was once a disaster. Every martial artist starts at white belt. So you might as well start now and go through the process quickly. Write some shit songs quick to get to a good song. Instead of trying to study songwriting your whole life, then you've still got to write shit songs to write a good song. Reminds me of a phrase we always used to talk about in, in the military. It's uh, very similar to what you're sharing there in, in so much as a good plan well executed today is way better than a perfect plan executed in four weeks time, right? 
get a decent yeah. plan. We talk about 70% decision-making, get 70% of the data, the information you need, and just act, have the confidence, execute. And to your point, like go all in in terms of commitment, accountability, and do whatever the hell it takes to, to make it work, right? Otherwise, as you said, we're just procrastinating, right? Ah, just tomorrow, I'll start next week, just a bit more data, a bit more information, or test the idea on a few more customers or friends, and then I'll, then I'll start. Like, right, tomorrow, it can easily be never. Yeah, tomorrow never comes. Tomorrow is always tomorrow. Even tomorrow, tomorrow is tomorrow. <laughs> I think, um, I think Mike Tyson says everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I saw Jocko Willink talk about how they can make a, pr a plan for an operation. But as soon as they're in the field, that plan usually goes out the window. Yeah. So the purpose of planning is to get started. Yeah. And then that plan evolves. Algorithms on social media are changing all the time. Trends are changing all the time. What consumers want are changing all the time. So actually getting started and being in the field of play, that's actually the biggest decision. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Um, let's talk about leadership specifically for a few minutes, Rob. Um, so you now run multiple businesses, that you, as you've touched on right at the start. How would you say your leadership style has changed and evolved as you've gone from sort of being a leader of one business and a group of people to now leading multiple leaders? Because I assume all your businesses have got different GMs, MDs in them. So how has that changed over time? And what are some of the the big learnings that my listeners might be able to take from you and apply to, to their world? Okay, so there's been loads. And um, firstly, I want to give a generalized definition of leadership versus management. Because I don't actually think a lot of people know the difference. Yeah, come so on, I'm a terrible manager, terrible manager. So, you know, a leader will create a vision and be involved likely in the top line strategy to get there. And then a manager will manage the resources required, people, systems, HR, finance, you name it. They will manage those resources to help you get there. So I don't get involved in staff contracts, disciplinaries, exit interviews, holiday forms, and yada, yada. This is all management, not leadership. And I think a lot of people think they're a leader, but they're actually a manager. And um, sometimes a good manager is not a good leader and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So over time, my leadership strategy has changed in that, number one, I accept people for who they are rather than expecting them to be who I want them to be. Now, I trust my recruitment process, trust my interview process, trust my job descriptions and my staff contracts and my HR department to hopefully bring in the right kind of person. Once we have the right kind of person and we've put them in the right environment, it, I can only expect them to be them, not me. I used to expect people to start early and finish late and work 12 hours and do over time and care about the business. No, people care about their dog and people care about their mortgage and people care about their holidays and people care about things that I don't care about because that's them. 
So I think as a great leader and manager, actually, the manager is the implementer of what I'm going to say. A great leader knows what the business needs and knows the values and high importance areas of the person being managed and gets them to meet in the middle. Nice. A dictator, you know, which a lot of leaders are, is basically like, this is the company. This is who you've got to be. And if you're not anything but this, then you're fired. And then, you know, a weak people-pleasing conflict-avoiding manager. Oh, really care about the individual. Yeah, have as much holiday as you want. Don't worry about coming in on time. Don't worry about the deadlines. It's all right. Yeah, you can work from home. I know your mental health is really important to you, yada, yada, yada. So you've got weak here and dictator over here. And actually, somewhere in the middle is where you need to be. You need to meet. So um, I believe one of the greatest sources of unhappiness is unrealistic expectations of other human beings. I hear shit all the time. I've got nearly 150 staff. And if I listen to everything about them, I'll be like, yeah, they're on social media. Yeah, they pulled a sickie because they've got a hangover because even though they got bank holiday off, they're taking another day off because they had a three-day bender. And, you know, blah, blah. And this staff member's sleeping with this staff member and yada, yada. And that all used to really piss me off. Because I'm judging them on Rob, the entrepreneur who wants to take over the world. But all humans do this. And I probably did this when I was an employee. So I'm a much happier person and probably a better leader when I only expect people to be themselves, not me. That's the first thing. The next thing is I'm much less um, micromanaging. And I I am a more hands-off leader than some. And I like to um, lead by me be me, and hopefully you can come along from the ride. I'm not like a David Brent-style patronising teacher-type <laughs> leader. Um, I just want to crack on and be me, and the people that can develop their career being around me, they can get around me and, and, and learn through osmosis. You know, I'm not one of these who will do all these rah-rah speeches and anything like that. But I'm very good at giving autonomy. I very rarely micromanage. Um, And to me, the the definition of a leader is someone who can nurture and develop other leaders. Uh, Now, what most leaders do, or many leaders do, is they're really managing stroke micromanaging, or they get the ego effect of, hey, I'm the boss. Uh, No one calls me boss. I never refer to myself as a boss of anyone. I don't see myself as a boss. In fact, my customers are more the boss than I am. So what I want to do is lift everyone up, you know, a a rung on the ladder on the hierarchy so that maybe they can become better versions of themselves. Hmm. So here's an interesting question. So you are clearly a guy who has got huge energy reserves right just chatting to you today you you can see it like massively driven like a a positive like force of energy looking at some of your stuff you create your content you create other interviews you've done that's all all i've seen of you you also talk there about you wanted to lift people up move them up along on the on the energy energy ladder and we know that's really, really important in terms of, of leadership because um, a, a researcher I've had on the show twice now, who in my opinion has written the best book on leadership that's ever been written, it's a guy called Jim Coozes. 
their research over 30 years asking followers, what do you look for in an admired leader? Inspiring has always been in the top four in every country, everywhere in the world, every year they've ever done the research. Now, how I define inspiring is leaving everyone that you meet with more energy, right? Being a radiator rather than the drain, an energizer rather than the, the, the mood hoover or the, the Debbie Downer who can just suck the will to live out of people. But being able to do that on a consistent basis as a leader, especially when we're facing challenges and times might be tough and market conditions might be against us, yada, yada, yada. How do you stay energized yourself so you can constantly bring that energy to the 150 people that you lead? What does that look like for you? How do you do it? Well, Ben, I think there you've hit on another great trait of great leaders. And that is a bit like the swan who above the water has grace and elegance. But when you look below, they've got these black flappy fins that are, you know, yeah, swimming all over the place. Uh, So a great leader can put in a box and park all the baggage they've got going on in their life to bring the energy the direction, the vision, the belief and the inspiration on a consistent basis. And if you look at the most successful people in the world in sports, it's consistency of performance. It's not occasional greatness followed by months of wilderness. It's consistent high level. So um, how I practice that because it's a daily practice yeah is a combination of mindset skill set and emotion okay so the mindset is building my resilience my durability my persistence my ability to take rejection my ability to accept problems reframe problems um you know not necessarily positive but um always turning a challenge into an opportunity. Then the skill set is how good I am at my job and maybe reading and learning and having mentors and continually sharpening my tools and putting into practice and experience on the ground and blood on the streets. And then emotions is that, like I just went to see my therapist today and every now and again, I sometimes don't see it for a year and sometimes I check in a few times and sometimes I go to her with a specific challenge and sometimes I just like, just want to check that, you know, I'm not beating myself up or I'm looking after my inner child or, you know, I'm, I'm not suppressing emotions because um, some people let emotions out too much and yeah. some people suppress emotions too much. Because I believe your business can only grow at the speed that you grow. So your personal growth is linked to your business growth. So um, I have got many flaws, Ben. And if we had another hour, I could we could have a different type of show. But I rarely do this publicly, but I'm going to do it because my therapist would love me for this. But I'm actually going to give myself some credit. In 10 years of running a company with hundreds of staff, I have never, ever shouted at or lost my shit or got angry at anyone in my team publicly, which would be the biggest sin, or even privately. 
And I don't think many leaders can say that. And we're all allowed one bad day, and I'm sure I'd be forgiven of that. But I haven't done it once in 10 years. And I'll tell you why. Because I did it 10 years ago, and I lost half my staff for it, and I deserved it, and I got a great lesson. So 10 years ago, my business partner and I just randomly went back to our staff one day after being mentored by James Kahn from Dragon's Den. And we were like, right, you're all going to write your systems documents now because we've seen James Kahn and he's mentored us and he believes we're not really systemized and, you know, it's too much reliant on us. So you're all going to write your systems document. And we were naive about how they would respond to that. We thought they would love that. Half of them thought we were trying to fire them and get rid of them and eke them out, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, long story short is the most senior person in the company, um, I said to him, oh, it's, it's, it's our time for our meeting where we're going to review your systems document. And he said, I'm not doing it. And I said, uh, you are. And he said, I'm not fucking doing it. And I said, you fucking are. So get the fuck in the office now because you're fucking doing it. And I gave him humiliation and shame in front of people, even though I was maybe within, in, entitled to do that. It was in front of others. Ironically, that's why I left my first job, because someone did that to me. <laughs> I pulled him into the meeting. He sat there and went, mm, whatever. And within a month, he'd left and he'd nicked three of the staff. And that was the business gives you the best life lessons. And I swore to myself that day, even if everything is falling to shit around me, I'm not going to use anyone as a punch bag. Hmm. Um, and I'm proud of that. Yeah. Let me just ask you, probably one final question on that and then we'll move on to a few of my normal quick quick fire questions so it's really interesting there you mentioned mindset which people talk about quite a lot skill set people talk about that quite a lot emotions probably until the last couple of years people weren't talking about that at all right but it's a huge part right it's a huge part of the of the human system. Our emotions drive so, so much of our, our behavior. And you've touched a little bit on sort of what caused the, the, the change. But other than that one example, 10, 10 years ago, what was it that, that drove you to really start? It sounds like doing some emotional work, let's call it, doing the emotional work with a therapist, et cetera. Like what, 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 what else triggered that? And like, what, why do you think it's been so valuable? Um, I regard myself as quite an emotional guy. As in up, in up, up and down or what, what do you mean by an emotional guy? Yeah, I, I honestly don't really know. But I think right. if you lined up 100 average people, you'd see a lot more heat map around me and my emotions than you would others I know who might be more logical or their emotional frequency range might be not as high but not as low they might have a narrower bandwidth when i get excited i'm like a helium balloon and then occasionally i need scraping off the floor with a shovel um and i i feel like i feel a lot um and that's good and bad is i'm very sensitive to people and their emotions and their moods and i read them a lot and in a boardroom that can be really good but what it can mean, like you said, with radiators and drains is if there's a drain in the room, it can really suck mm. the life out of me. So I've always, even since I started my business day one, regarded myself as quite an emotional person. But what I figured out quite quickly, by the way, if you want to learn how to master your life, start your own business. <laughs> yeah. Because 
Better than Tony Robbins, who I've studied all of his stuff. Better than John Demartini, I've studied, studied all of his stuff. The best lesson for life mastery is running a business because it is a microcosm of life. And if you lose your shit in business, you lose profit, you get sued, your customers turn on you, and there is instant feedback. Like, let's say you're, you're a narcissist or you're a drama king or queen or whatever, and, you know, you fall out with a friend, you can always find a new friend. And you fall out with a friend, you can always find a new friend. But if you are that in business, you lose customers, you lose money, you go bust. So business gives you much quicker. I like quick feedback. If I win, I want to know now quickly why so I can do more. And if I make a mistake, I want to now know now and quickly. And you get that instant feedback with business, which is why I love it, because I love the speed. So I'd go there and be emotional in business and I'd lose a customer, um, you know, or my boss would tell me off or something would happen. I'd get the instant feedback. And pretty quickly, I figured out that um, managing and channeling and controlling my emotions would give me great rewards in business. Oh, and it just so happens to give you great rewards in life, i.e. never take your shit out on your kids. You know, our kids are going to bring us enough drama. Let's deal with their drama, but let's not put our drama onto their drama. That's why a great leader, they put in a box their own problems because they don't. Most leaders are bringing their drama to their staff and they're just passing the drama down. And then that manager passes the drama down. And that's not a great way to run a company. And I'm really grateful I learned that in my first year in business. Like in my first year in business, I learned getting joint venture partners will grow you quicker. Managing your emotions will make you more money. And I also learned that getting good at marketing is the single skill you need to grow your company quick. And I learned all those three in my first year in business. I know people who've been in business 20 years, they still haven't learned that. Haven't learned, yeah. Nice, nice. One final, final question. I said the last one was the final one, but this might be the final <laughs> long one. Um, you said just then, sometimes you're, you're massively up like the helium balloon. Sometimes you're down and you need scraping off the floor, right? Your 150 employees know that now because they've just heard you say it on a podcast. Uh, other than that, would they have known that about you, i.e. sometimes you can be really low or have you always sort of hidden that and protected it and whenever they've seen you, you are the – the, the energized Rob rather than the, the down Rob. Have you always been able to, to put on that show? Because sometimes whilst leadership is absolutely about being honest, authentic, congruent, right? Sometimes we have to put on a performance, right? And be what our team need us, need us to be. What, is, what does that look like for you? Yeah. So you raise a really good question, actually, about honesty as a leader. And um, if it is our quarterly vision meeting, even if I've had the worst day, I've got to put on a show because that is our quarterly vision meeting and they require me to put on a show. Now, I can honor my mood and put on a different type of show, but I've got to put on a show. Hmm. Um, whereas other days I can bring a more vulnerable, honest side of me if it serves the team. And actually knowing when to do that is probably the trait of a great leader. Um, I, I wouldn't actively try and hide truth from my staff 
I would just try and bring a consistent Rob. So um, nice. I did my training this morning. I um, spent about an hour with my wife and I said to her when I left the house, I said, I'm going to go and spread a load of good energy around my company for the next three hours. So that was a decision I made before I walked out the door. And if I'm having a shit day, which you know happens, I still try and say that same thing. That's not not being honest. That is being a leader, I think. However, do my staff know I have a therapist? Yes. If I've had any mental health challenges or I've really struggled with a concept or a challenge, if I'm asked and if there's an opportunity to share that, will I share it? Yes. If I'm trying to inspire and help people who are struggling, will I give some examples of where I've struggled? Yes. And that's that's being honest. But every day going, oh, fuck, my life is shit because this, this, <laughs> this, this and that happened. That's not being honest. That's being a shit leader. 100%. Love it. Cool. Rob, a couple of my regular quickfire questions for you. Um, what would you say is the one book that has had the greatest impact upon you? Or maybe to ask the question in a slightly different way, if it helps, one book that you find yourself frequently recommending or gifting to other people? So personal development book was Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, because it was the first book where I really believed, oh, I can be an entrepreneur and make money and visualize and manifest. The game changing autobiography for me was Arnold Schwarzenegger's Total Recall. Brilliant. He's one of brilliant my heroes. Book. He's a brilliant book. He's a big thinker. He's got a brilliant mentality. He came in as an immigrant. He's very grateful to America, gives credit to team. He doesn't believe in self-made, multidisciplinarian in that he's successful in many areas of life. And I want to shout out to two documentaries. Number one is Alexander McQueen's documentary. So I only wear Alexander McQueen clothing. I've made it my brand over the last four years. The, the documentary on Alexander McQueen, if that doesn't move you to tears in an inspiring way, then you are not human. And the story of him is the analogy for life of the balance of pleasure and pain and darkness and light. And then I just watched yesterday Michael J. Fox's new documentary called Still. What an absolute legend Michael J. Fox is. Like the funniest, lightheartedest, most optimistic guy who got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease 30 years before most yeah. people get diagnosed with it. I'm trying to get him on the show. I want to shout that out because it's just so inspiring. Yeah, brilliant. And Rob, what is one item other than your mobile phone that you would immediately go out and replace if it were to be lost, broken or stolen? Probably my nicest Patek Philippe watch. And I, I know that's a little bit superficial. I was trying to think of something deep and meaningful. Um, maybe the device that locks my kids' devices. <laughs> that, that I would go and replace. How old are your um, kids? Uh, nine and 12. Yeah. But um, there's beauty in fine craftsmanship, like... Lamborghini, Ferrari, Patek Philippe, Picasso, whatever. And, you know, I like to 
wear McQueen, Patek Philippe, as an homage to skill and beauty and talent, as well as just it being gratuitously expensive. I could, like, I put on a nice watch in the morning and, like, let's go and get today. Uh, it's part of the routine. Like, I do my ice baths every day and they make me feel amazing. But putting on the Patek Philippe and just looking at the, the, the craftsmanship. You know, if you think about how many people were employed and how many years the finest watchmaker studied, 40 years to make a watch like that. So I'm, superficially, I would say my Patek Philippe watches. Nice. Rob, the next question, I'll ask it for you in a second. What we do with it is we ask um, like about five different leaders on episodes the same question. And then towards the end of the season, we cut all the answers out. We do a nice little medley where we have loads of people asking the same one. So it's a question around the top top tips for delegation. So I'll do a slight pause. I'll ask you the question, then, then let you answer. Rob, you lead multiple businesses across your businesses, employing 150 odd people, I believe. That being the case, what would you say are your top two to three tips for um, effective delegation? Number one, sell the vision. Don't just outsource the task. Number two, cut the person in. Maybe give it to them as a project, not just a delegated admin task. Uh, and number three, have good accountability to get it done, a measurable outcome, whether it's a deadline or a commission or some kind of reward for finishing the task. Oh, and 3.5, delegate to the right person. Yeah, really important, right? Delegating to the right person. And let me just ask a follow-up question on that. Um, how do you go about sell selling the vision? Because we all talk about vision a lot in in leadership. Everyone talks about having a having a vision, but you've touched on a really key point there, right? Like creating the vision. Like lots of people think about vision being a nice crafted vision statement, but for me, like that's probably less than ten percent of the job, right? A beautiful, beautifully crafted vision statement that no one understands, that leaders never talk about, isn't worth worth anything. It's about constantly breathing life into it, right? So how do you bring a vision to life within your businesses? Well, there's the grand vision. So for our company to help as many people on this planet get better financial education and knowledge. I think that's very clear, actually. Um, but then there's also, when it comes to a task, selling the why. Yeah, because nice, nice. nice. I believe anybody from level one newest person in the company to the owner, manager, founder wants to feel important, wants to feel valued and wants to feel like they're doing something useful for the cause. So if you let the people you're delegating to know why what you're doing is useful to the cause, even if it might only seem like a general dog's body admin task, you're going to unleash in them that sensation that they're doing something valuable. Awesome. Love it. Rob, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for bringing the energy to, to the show. Um, you've certainly done what you said you uh, were going to set out to do when you left your wife this morning to spread energy around your business, 
and indeed the listeners on my show. So thank you very much for your time. Wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. Ben, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. If you don't risk anything, you risk everything.